0: My name is Sarah, and I am so grateful that you are here today to listen to an amazing episode with somebody who I think is just incredible to the sober community. And her name is Jill. And she runs a podcast called Sober Powered. And on Instagram, you can find her at sober.powered. She has a bachelor's in science and chemistry and a master's in biology. And she is also in recovery for alcoholism. And she just celebrated one year. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So just, I just wanted to say that Jill tells us why she finally stopped chasing the buzz and what she's learned along the way. She is a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. So I have to be honest, I wish we could discuss every single episode that Jill has out. <laughs> what is it, 24 so far or yeah, more? 24. Yeah, 24. And I'm gonna read them out during this episode. But today we decided to discuss how alcohol affects sleep. And the holidays are typically a time when most of us are sleep deprived. Whether or not we drink heavily or alcoholically or not, um, that's just my opinion. Um, And a lot of us are also experiencing COVID fatigue right now with the coronavirus. And I have to be honest, I think I am in the throes of COVID fatigue. I am constantly tired. But doing an episode with Jill has inspired me to get up and get to work (laughs) and to share her with you all, my listeners who I love so much. So, so Jill, if you will, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, both your personal experience with alcoholism and then your background and then we can just kind of go right into the topic of sleep. Yeah, um, so I didn't start drinking until I was
1: 22 in graduate school. So I went through all of my college years um, not drinking at all. And as soon as I started drinking, it it was a huge problem right away. Um, my very first glass of wine, I had intense shame after because I had a small buzz and that was my instant reaction to it. So that should have been a sign. And then it just kept escalating and escalating. And it took probably less than a year for me to become a daily drinker. And then Probably another year went by where I wasn't able to, like, choose not to drink anymore. And I continued drinking after that point for five more years. I was so obsessed with moderation. It was everything I wanted for my life. I thought if I could just figure it out, and I tried every strategy I could think of. I did so much research online, and nothing worked for me. And then, Just things kept getting worse and worse and worse over those five years. And in the last year, I developed pretty bad anxiety, which is something that has never been an issue for me. So I was staying up all night, several nights a week, fighting off panic attacks. So I wasn't sleeping. And then I was drinking every day and depression, which is something I've struggled with, that evolved into suicidal thoughts. So then I would have anxiety all night, and suicidal thoughts, and I wouldn't sleep, and I would think about these awful things, and it inspired me eventually to quit. The fear that that could actually become a reality—that I could act on those thoughts when I was drunk—was enough to scare me into stopping. Um, so I stopped. A couple days from now will be like 13 months ago, and. I noticed like all those scary thoughts went away pretty quickly. And I remember the day I realized like alcohol did all of that and it was crazy. I thought part of it was me and it actually wasn't. And when I started sharing on Instagram and and on Facebook about my experience, a lot of other people reached out to me and said they had the same scary thoughts and that helped me a lot. So sharing has been a huge part of my journey, and just helping me feel better about myself.
0: Yeah, having this community online right now during the coronavirus mm-hmm. in particular has has been extraordinarily helpful for me. I know, so that's wonderful. Congratulations to you! And um, thank you. Thirteen months, and you've done so much in these thirteen months to give back and to and to help people who are struggling. Can you, t- can you tell me I'm just curious curious to hear about your experience with you tried you said I tried so hard with moderation so what did that look like for you when you were trying so hard with moderation
1: Yeah so I would I downloaded a bunch of different apps that would tra- um, track my like drunkness level and I would write down my drinks. so I had a limit for the week so the first time I did that I saw by Friday I was almost I almost reached my limit. So then I would start tracking on Friday and (laughs) hope that that would be better. But then, you know, by Tuesday, I was already giving up on that. I would wear rubber bands around my wrist for the number of drinks I was allowed to have. Um, And then by the third one, you're like, screw it, whatever. And um, I had, I got my husband into it. I would have him pour my drinks and that wouldn't work either. And I even tried to be sober for a bit to like cure myself. I thought that was something that could work. So when I first started getting scary thoughts, I said I can't drink for 90 days. And I thought by the end of that, that I'd start to drink again and I'd be a normal moderate drinker. I just needed a reset. And it did work. Actually, I did moderate for two months without any issue. But then the first time I was tested, I went right back to my old ways. There was no even like gradual progression to it. It was just like moderation and then horrible. And I couldn't go back to moderation after that. Um, Yeah, I stopped being social because I thought my friends were putting some pressure on me to drink faster than I wanted, and I found that I usually drink less if I was alone, um, so, I, so I stopped hanging out with people. So there were a lot of really sad things that I tried, and just none of them ever worked for me. It just kept getting worse and worse.
0: Wow, and you know, I think we all—I know—I d- went through experiences of trying to moderate. I did it for mm-hmm. a much longer time, decades. That is, I would go through dry spells, and you know, just <clears throat> I would try everything in my power, and I just—I knew that th- actually, for me, I—I I drank. You know, it was the opposite. You know, that it's, it, it's—it's interesting because I don't think there's like just one way that somebody experiences. Um, the failures of moderation can go um, any way. So I'm curious to know um, what made you, when was it that you decided, hey, I'm going to do a podcast and share with the world about the science behind all of this and the biology um, behind all of this? Yeah,
1: so a huge part of my journey, I guess, was feeling like a loser, like I was bad, um, very intense feelings of shame. And when I finally accepted that I cannot drink, I wanted to understand like what makes me this way. It can't be just that I'm a horrible loser. There has to be like some explanation for it. So really within the first week, probably I started researching and trying to figure out, Why, like, why can my husband be a completely normal drinker who chooses to get drunk on occasion and it doesn't blow up his life, but I have no control or choice in anything. And I, quarantine helped a lot with this project. Um, I think I was about four months sober when this whole thing started and it just gave me a lot more time to do my research. And then around like six or seven months, I felt that I had learned so much that other people should know what I know and then yeah I remember I woke up like that and I thought everyone needs to know this and then that afternoon I launched (laughs) it was just like a spur-of-the-moment decision like I didn't do the trailer the promotion or record three episodes I just like recorded my little intro episode and just put it out there I had nine listeners one of them was me one of them was my mom (laughs) And that was it. That's how it started. Oh, that's
0: amazing. It's amazing. And it, it's, and it seems to be just really catching and I hope it continues to catch and, Thank and spread. You. Tell me what were, um, before we get into sleep, cause I do mm-hmm. want to get into sleep. What, what was one of the first, like the first thing you researched, you said that you picked up a book one day just to like to figure out why you were so different from your husband with drinking.
1: I think the first thing I wanted to know about was anxiety. Um, I know a lot of people who just generally struggle with that in their lives, um, not related to alcohol. And it had never been something that happened to me before. And when I stopped drinking, it went away, basically. So I wanted to know, like, did alcohol actually do that to me? Like, how did that even happen? That I would be up all night with panic attacks when before and after um, my drinking years, I don't have that experience. So it started there. And then I started asking other questions like why did my resting heart rate get so high? (laughs) Why did I have high blood pressure at 29 years old? Um, Things like that. So I just had these questions and then I would research and then it would just spiral into a ton of information.
0: (laughs) Yes, and, and a ton of information it is. And it's, it's so valuable. And I know listeners, please make sure you subscribe to her podcast because she provides a wealth of information. As you can tell, she has a very soothing, comfortable <laughs> voice <laughs> and she's lovely, lovely as can be. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, so episode three, you discuss alcohol, sleep, and drinking dreams. For me, I slept terribly when I drank. I, mm-hmm. It helped me to get to sleep. Um, but then over time, I don't even remember when because I remember I drank for decades. I I remember I just never slept well the last several years. I just never slept well. I woke up with a racing heart, um, never dreaming. Um, I would I'd pass out and be like, okay, that that it got me to sleep. But then the rest it, it was maybe like three hours of sleep, and then the rest of the night was just utter hell, like you said you experienced early on. So, um, so what happens when we get really drunk and we go to sleep? So it knocks you out. Um, a
1: lot of people will think that alcohol helps them sleep and it it like kind of does. It helps you fall asleep faster because it's just really shutting you off. It's not easing you into restorative sleep. You just kind of click off. And then that was my experience most nights. So I would click off and then about three hours later I would jolt awake and you weren't really asleep. Like that's the thing that I was trying to understand. It's like going under anesthesia. It's not, so you're not resting and, and recovering during that time. You're just out and alcohol does a few things. So it, it suppresses REM, which is where we dream and where we, um, have the most restorative sleep. So it suppresses that and it sends you, you don't have a normal sleep cycle. You just go directly into super deep sleep. So then, once the alcohol metabolizes and starts wearing off, you will, first of all, ha- probably have some anxiety. So that's one reason you won't sleep. And you're dehydrated. So you're going to wake up thirsty and probably having to go to the bathroom after that. But your brain's always going to try to balance what alcohol did to it. So if it suppressed REM sleep, now it's going to try to rebound and, and make up for the sleep it didn't get. And that means you're, you're kind of alternating in like light sleep, REM sleep. And it's just so much easier to wake up. So when you would normally have deep sleep, you're not in it because you are supposedly in it in the beginning of the night. So that's why it's easy to just wake up a thousand times. And, you know, the racing heart rate that wakes you up. So there's a lot going on. And then on top of that, alcohol suppresses melatonin production. So we produce melatonin in the evening to help us feel sleepy. And If alcohol suppresses that, you feel less sleepy, so you'll have trouble going to sleep. So there's so much going on. And even though it eases you into sleep in the beginning of the night by knocking you out, the whole rest of your night is horrible. (laughs) So it's worth like struggling a bit in the beginning is what I found. Like It's very common for newly sober people to struggle with insomnia because they're so used to just putting themselves to bed that way. And it's because of all these changes that have happened and you have to let your brain like recover. So it it depends on alcohol. It knows it's going to be there. And when it's not there, it's like weird. So it takes time, but it's worth it. And now like I had the worst sleep ever when I was drinking and now I sleep like I'm 18 again, which I didn't think adults could do. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the best sleep of my adult life. That's amazing. How long did it take for you to
0: get back into normal sleep patterns?
1: I think about a month. So it depends on your drinking. So I drank heavily for seven years. Um, If someone drank heavily for 27 years, it might be a bit different for them. Um, But it took me about a month. I had insomnia pretty bad the first two weeks. I took some melatonin that I just got from Amazon, and that helped me so much. It helped me get to sleep. And once you get to sleep, you're okay. Um, And then I've also read that in the first year to year and a half of sobriety, your sleep is continuing to improve. So if you're a drinker or you're newly sober, you automatically have less sleep than non-alcohol abusers. And That's just the research. But when you recover, you can actually get more sleep than other people. So you kind of luck out at the end. So even though we suffered for a really long time,
0: we can have better sleep
1: than the normal people get.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. And you talked about restorative sleep during the REM cycle and how that gets interrupted when we're, when we pass out drunk. Mm Mm-hmm. What's going on? Like, so, what's happening then to the brain when we're not, we're not getting this restorative sleep? So that, so it could be obvious to some, but I'm just wanting to ask the question: to, What what happens then, time and time and time again when we're not getting that restorative sleep?
1: Yeah, you're you're exhausted every day, probably on top of your miserable hangover. Your immune system is weakened. That's a huge one. Um, if you're sick, it takes you longer to recover. If you're injured for some reason, it takes you longer to recover. So your memory is impacted. Your ability to learn and perform at work is impacted because you're not, even if you do actually sleep for eight hours, most of that time is bad sleep. And the time that you are knocked out from going to bed drunk, it really like doesn't count. So even when I would be in bed for eight hours, I still felt horrible every single day. And it's because your your brain isn't able to do what it's supposed to do. It can't control its own sleep. So your cycles are then controlled by alcohol. So you're forced into deep sleep and then you don't get any more deep sleep and you don't get REM in the beginning so then your brain tries to make up for all this REM that it missed so it's it just results in exhaustion and
0: then everything suffers if you're not sleeping yeah it does and does for somebody who is not like a like um heavy drinkers like you and I were but maybe they like right now during COVID they've they 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 used to drink maybe a half a glass of wine a night and now they're drinking three glasses of wine a night and they're noticing changes with their sleep or they're drinking a bottle of wine a night. Like, just, would you say that like the the constant, um, like the daily drinking for somebody who's drinking less than like the total obliviated, you know, like cr- <laughs> <laughs> I would do, you know, like drink to pass out, you know. Like how, is that different? Is it, is, it st- is it still impacting somebody's brain and like immune function and things of that nature? Yes. So
1: if you're drinking like one glass is probably not going to do much to you. But if you're having like three or four a night, every night or most nights, then the same things will be impacted. It just won't be so severe. So alcohol can also stimulate... Um, something called GABA that calms down your brain. So it slows down brain activity. And your brain wants to maintain a balance between GABA, which slows down your brain activity, and the other neurotransmitter called glutamate that speeds up brain activity. So then it increases that one. So once the alcohol leaves, you're not as calm. And then on top of that, you have extra of this excitatory neurotransmitter. So you're just super stimulated and that's why you wake up. You have less melatonin and your brain's really excited, way more excited than it should be. And that's another reason you get anxiety. And, and even if you just drink for one night, like if you're just a Saturday night binge drinker, um, your heart will still be impacted by it that night and you'll wake up with the racing heart and the panicking. and So there's a lot of different ways that you can be woken up and and made miserable from your drinking, even if it's not very much, but it's every day, or if it's once a week, but it's a ton, or like us, if it's a ton, basically every day. So yeah, even for the people who quarantine has just messed them up, but maybe they're not in our category, it still has a big impact.
0: What over time does that do to our heart to constantly be in that racing state?
1: Yeah, so alcohol increases your, your heartbeat. So the rate that your heart's going to beat. And if you drink a lot, like every day, like I was, then you're constantly having that negative effect. It can also change the rhythm of your heart that's why you'll get palpitations or something like that. Um, So it it has a big effect on your heart because it goes into your heart from your blood and then your heart sends it everywhere else. Um, So it hangs out there. And yeah, just the heartbeat is the big one. So the more alcohol you drink, the faster your heart is going to beat. And when the alcohol wears off, that's when you notice it and you feel like crazy at 3 a.m. and your heart's beating so fast. Yeah, that was one of my least favorite things about drinking was that moment when you would wake up at 3 a.m.
0: I, I identify with that, Jill, because I remember uh, that's when I would be the most afraid about mm-hmm. what I was doing to myself. Um, Me too. Or- and I, and I, I would think this can't be right. Am I, am I going to have a heart attack? Am I, am I just going to die? Cause my heart can't, my heart can't tolerate, um, this much drinking anymore. Um, and, and it became very frightening. Um, and <clears throat> that, you know, I, there were a lot of things that, that got me to the end of my drinking career. And that was one of the things that, you know, it was a, a, one of the seeds, one of the many seeds that were, was planted inside of me to help me get, get to the end of my drinking career. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um. So you've shared with us a lot of wonderful knowledge and insight on, on the science. Um, and this is just a fraction of what she can offer you folks. I mean, really, you have to go to her podcast. Um, so that being said, and this is important, I think, for us to discuss is that you know, as alcoholics, as people who identify as alcoholics, as people that say, I know I, can only, I can't have one sip because it will turn into, you know, one, you know, a case of wine, you know, in some mm-hmm. cases a lot. So I would imagine, would you ever be at a, when you were drinking actively, did you think about these things? Like on, a, on like an intellectual level? like while you're drinking and did you go through like times where you're thinking, okay, I know this isn't right based on what I know from my degrees in in chemistry and biology and um, my, my high intellect. Did it ever, what was it, what got you to finally stop or what, what was it that got you to the end? Like your last day, I guess.
1: Yeah, so I knew. um, I knew it was a carcinogen. I knew why it was a carcinogen. I knew, I didn't know a lot, but I knew enough about how it was affecting my heart. I was terrified of um, damaging my heart permanently from my drinking. And all that knowledge, um, it didn't matter. I didn't really care, even though I knew. So that's why a lot of people will identify with, once you learn it's a poison, It's easier to not do it. And I can't identify with that because I knew. I knew exactly how bad it was. And it just, I didn't care. Um, I would still be afraid of it, but it wouldn't stop me. But what did stop me was the suicidal thoughts. Um, Because they were getting so intense and so powerful. And they were very regular. So every time I got drunk, I would have the same experience during the night. And one night I just realized, like, what if my husband is on a motorcycle trip? Because that's something that he does. And if I get really drunk that night and I'm all by myself, like, what could happen to me? And I remember just feeling, like, so sad for myself. This was at 530 in the morning after not sleeping the whole night. And... And I didn't want that to be my future. And once I accepted that it's a very possible reality, I stopped.
0: Wow. Wow. You're so lucky.
1: Yeah, I know, because people take it further. That's not enough for them. And then they do act on it. And, you know, some of them are successful with that and that is so sad some of them are not successful and that will shock them out um maybe it doesn't maybe they keep trying i've i've heard some stories online about people who um cause themselves like some kind of disability because of their attempts so their life is permanently altered and then that gets them to stop so there's I really believe there's like a misery threshold, and I'm just really lucky that mine was
0: earlier than yeah. some people. I'm so sorry that you had those suicidal thoughts. Um, Thank you. And I'm I'm so glad that you're that you're here alive today, talking with my listeners and with me and sharing your wisdom and your experience. It's um. You know, it's important to know, I think it's really important to know um, the science behind what alcohol can do to our bodies. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that I know for me, if I had heard, I would run away from co- podcasts like this. I would, um, in fact, I would watch television shows, um, one in particular called um, Intervention. Mm-hmm. And I would watch it while I was drinking, and I would say, "Wow, they're all really fucked up." And I have my problem. I don't have a problem because they, their lives, and I would compare my life to Mm -hmm. theirs. Okay, so you're not in your head. You obviously (laughs) can (laughs) identify with that. Oh yeah, yeah, I did that too because you,
1: (coughs) you're told that. You have to destroy your life, destroy all your relationships, lose your job, um, destroy your finances. And I didn't have any of that experience. I got my master's degree while I was drinking every day when I was 26. Wow. Wow. And I had a job as a scientist. Before that, I was working as a teacher. That one is hard, going to work hungover every day when you're a teacher. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I, I very, very rarely miss work. Only at the very end of my drinking, I would take an occasional sick day, but I didn't have any of that, like, criteria for having a problem, and I used that to justify my drinking for so many years. I actually even had a therapist use that to justify why I didn't have a problem, mm-hmm. and it's just sad that you're either fine or you have to be that bad. There's varying degrees of bad. And I could have been that bad if I didn't stop last year. I could have continued on. And, you know, if something bad didn't happen to me in the middle of the night, could have lost my job. I could have um, had my husband leave me. All sorts of bad things could have happened, but some of us are able to pull ourselves out of it before that, but we're still bad. Like, I know I can't drink ever again, even though I'm only 30. If I'm 60, I still can't drink. And yeah, I think that's an important point. And I'm picturing you watching
0: Intervention with a glass of wine. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> and now I watch it. I know it's, we can laugh at that now, but it was, it was so sad. I had to find
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, everything that I could find in the world that helped me to rationalize mm-hmm. my own drinking and um, that's what I lived for, you know, getting drunk and, and finding out ways to, to make sure that, you know, what I was doing is okay. I couldn't let it go. And now, like, I did actually, I can't watch that show anymore, because it actually makes me very, very sad. Um, I did watch it again a couple of years into sobriety. And I just, I just, um, there was one episode in particular of a, of a housewife who just had everything. And she, you know, she just... Was falling down drunk. I mean, obviously she had been. It progressed rapidly, and it was at a ba- bad place. And I looked at her, and um, and I and I saw what I could have become, and um, and I felt so badly for her first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And I wonder. I think about. I think about those people that I watched on the, on the episodes, and um, and I feel such compassion. Um, but you know, we're not bad people right? Where, where, um, where people, I guess you can explain it the best, alcoholism as, as a science, if, if, if you can do that, would you be able to do that for the listeners?
1: Yeah. Um, So because I had so much shame, I was very motivated by genetics and this idea about um, how it's, hereditary. Um, So you have mentioned to me that you have some problem drinkers in your family and I actually do not. But you can still inherit genes that make you more susceptible to developing it. So even if no one else has, those genes can still be present and they can be brought out by things like trauma, which is something that I have experienced in my life before my drinking days. And um, I was also very motivated by how it changes our brain chemistry to make us just even worse and even more trapped. But um, for genetics, I think one of my favorite pieces of information that I learned is, um, so we all have endorphins. You think of like runner's high and we have endorphin levels in our blood that that keep us happy and and feeling good. And some people have naturally low levels of endorphins. So you can imagine how that might present itself as as depression or just a low mood normally. And when a normal people, I always use my husband as an example, I don't know his genetics, but um, a normal person like my husband, they have an average level of blood endorphins and they'll have a drink and it'll stay stable. But say I have a naturally low level of endorphins, I will have a drink and my endorphins will skyrocket way above normal. So that's why it feels amazing for somebody like me. And for my husband, he has a drink and he's like, well, this is nice. This feels good. But for me, it's like, oh, this is the best thing in the whole world. I feel so good. And that's what motivates you to be like, oh, one more, one more. And yeah, things like that have really opened my eyes to, like, it's not my fault. It just feels a lot better for me. And there have been studies where scientists have done brain imaging on normal people and problem drinkers and they found that when they're presented with a cue the normal people have you know some kind of response in their brain you can see some activity and the problem drinkers have extra so more things are lighting up in their brain so it just shows that it it feels better for some of us and if it feels really really good you're going to want do it and that's another thing that just reinforces the problem so yeah the more that I read and the more that I learn it just it's nobody's fault like drugs too it's not just alcohol it's nobody's fault and for me like that very first drink was what was that sealed me in and um it wasn't like I thought like, oh, it's never going to happen to me. I can just binge drink and then go back to normal. It just wasn't an option to be normal ever. And yeah, I think that's the most important message. It's nobody's fault. I know um, I'll see women post, and this really breaks my heart, when their husband is not supportive and he'll say um, that it's her fault. That she drank that much and did that to herself, and they'll blame their partner. I'm sure women do it to their husbands too. It's not just men, but that makes me so sad when people don't have a supportive partner, and when someone else tells you it's your fault, it's so much more believable.
0: Wow, wow. So what I'm thinking about right now is that I I know some people in in the eight and a half years I've been um, in my program of recovery, I've met lots of people. Um, I've seen people come and go. I've seen people sit next to me one day and be gone dead the next day. I've heard people talk about, well, I don't understand why I'm an alcoholic because there's nobody in my family who's an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And you just provided an answer to that right now. So, um, I hope anyone who's who's kind of I, there's with a the shame that shame is such a huge huge piece as you've mentioned before um because I know for me I felt so much shame that I could not control this mm-hmm. um but you're providing in your podcast with your knowledge really it's just I want so many people to find you and listen to you because you're 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 offering such valuable information for to help end stigmas, and to um, build awareness about the reality of alcoholism and drug addiction, and how it's not anybody's fault. It's it's not it's you're not a bad person. It's just how the dice were rolled. I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the
1: sooner that we can escape all of that shame, the sooner we can get better because the shame keeps you trapped. It makes you hate yourself and then you drink because you hate yourself and it makes you isolate and not want to tell anyone. And I know for me, a a huge thing when I was getting to the end and I I knew I was kind of getting to the end I was like, what's everybody at work going to think? And even now, I, I switched jobs a few months ago, and I'm like, what if people at work find out? Um, what's my boss going to think about me? Even though I'm over a year sober, like there's still a lot of judgment that comes with it. And and most people don't understand. Even my husband, even though I've told him literally everything, he knows everything I've learned. He knows my exact experience, my thoughts, he still can't understand. And sometimes we'll have a conversation and he thinks one thing and then I enlighten him about the truth. And he's like, whoa, like shocked. Um, he thought like when I did successfully moderate and have two glasses of wine that I was like really happy about that. and And like that was my goal. And I remember I told him like a good night of drinking for me was like the whole bottle and then not having more. (laughs) And when I had two glasses, it was like a waste of time. And I would go to bed every night and be like, oh man, I drank and I didn't even have fun and I should have just not drank. And yeah, and I enlightened him with that and he was shocked. He thought those were the good days and they really weren't those were the waste of time days. Yeah.
0: Yes. I understand. I identify with that so much, Jill. And I, I think about myself, if I had two glasses of wine, because I was trying to moderate or control, it would be torture for me to not like, I just wanted to have more, like, it was just this insidious, this, uh, it was just this awful, horrid feeling. Like that I, I, I can't just have these two glasses of wine. I have to have more now. I have to have more. And that's where the I think the misunderstanding comes and people don't understand it. And that's why, again, why people like you and I doing the work that we're doing, mm-hmm. podcasting, building awareness, getting this out there for people to understand, to share with their relatives who don't get it. You know, I, I think... Um that's that's all we can really do with that. I know for me, I I wish I could just change the world, you know, maybe everyone understand with a lot of things. But you know, obviously I cannot control the world. (laughs) The world is not my stage to direct. But um this little little pieces like this, um meeting you, finding out about you has been like the the really um has been I'm I'm just so excited about. So Cause you're going to, you're going to help so many people with your knowledge. Thank you. So before we, we close up, I want to read to the listeners. Um, the episodes the, the titles of the episodes that Jill has put out already. Um, her first episode is introduction, how alcohol causes anxiety. And then you have a bonus episode, right? The last night you drank. Yep.
1: All gotcha. the details.
0: Oh, so good. So good. Um, two alcohol cravings. Why does our brain tell us to drink? And these are, these are like 15 to 20 minute interview, uh, episodes. So if you, you have a problem with like staying focused on an episode, <laughs> don't worry. Cause she gets, she gets to the points very quickly. <laughs> Um, And then the next one is what we discussed a bit, a little bit about was alcohol, sleep, drink and drinking dreams. And then four is let's talk about sex. I haven't listened to that one yet. Um, Sugar addiction, alcohol, metabolism, shame, withdrawal from chronic day ones to forever sobriety. I can't wait to listen to that. Denial and dry drunk syndrome, endorphins and I can never say this word. (laughs) Opioid receptors. (laughs) You said it? Okay. (laughs) Okay. And episode 12, blackouts. 13, alcohol, serotonin, and depression. 14, nature versus nurture. 15, stigma and social death. 16, signs I was a problem drinker. So I guess that's more about your experience. Alcohol in the heart, which we, we touched on a bit, how I handle my husband's drinking and your husband, you say is not an alcoholic, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Mine is not either. Alcohol use disorder and psychiatric comorbidities. Did I say that correct? Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) I said, we're zooming and I'm seeing you looking at me, like making sure. Yes. I'm saying it correctly. Why is it so hard to moderate? I'm one year sober. Yay that was you put that out November 13th why you think alcohol helps your anxiety and why that's not the truth (laughs) (laughs) I added that what your blood can reveal about your liver health and how addiction develops that's episode 24 which you put out on yesterday Mm -hmm. I haven't listened to all of them but I will be I'll I'll probably overdose on them this weekend (laughs) Can you give us a little bit of a teaser about what, I mean, I really tease the listeners with all of this. Um, You can't not go to her podcast and listen to her, but what, what are you thinking about in terms of future episodes? So I'm definitely going to
1: do one about the holidays. Um, Just one, not a series like you're doing, which is (laughs) amazing. People need that because I know people start getting stressed about that, like two or three months before, um, But just how I did my first sober holiday season, I was like six weeks-ish sober last year. Um, So tips for that. I also am working on one, Um, how does the brain recover? Mm. So does the brain fully recover? Do some issues stick around? Does it depend on, you know, how much you drank or how long you drank? So that one's taking taking a lot of effort. I want to talk about hormones, how alcohol affects our hormones. Um, That's not a strength of mine. That's why I haven't done it yet. Hormones are challenging to understand. And um, yeah, I'm open to anything really. So I've had people request topics and I do my best. Oh, and the immune system. That's another one that I want to talk a lot about because that's, that's something that I do have lot of background in just career wise. So get into the specifics and, and like what our immune system actually looks like and all the different cell types. And so I think that one will be really cool.
0: Yeah, I do too. You're amazing. Thank you. I'm so grateful that we connected and I can't wait to, um, have you on my podcast again. Um, just to, to, to lighten things a little bit, I guess, um, and for listeners to, to get to know you, what, what are, I guess, your top three favorite musical artists? Oh, that one is hard. Um, my
1: favorite is Trivium. Trivium.
0: I've never heard of Trivium. Yeah, they're metal. Um, I would have never guessed that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> when I look at you, I think Nora Jones, I think,
1: no. <laughs> okay. Um, so Trivium, and then I also really like this band. Um, they're called Dust to Dust, and they're on my gym playlist. They're excellent for the gym. Okay. Um, and then my other favorite is Ghost. They're, they're like somewhere in between metal and rock. So they're, they've won Grammys and everything. So they're enjoyable for more people.
0: Cool. Thank you. So we get to know you a little bit more with that. <laughs> and then lastly, I almost forgot. And I asked you before we started recording, if it was okay to share what you do for, a li- you, you just got a new job two months ago. Um, and it, it, I wanted to cry when you told me what you were doing. <laughs> Please share with listeners what you are doing um, in your profession today.
1: Yeah, um, so I work for a company called BioNTech, and they are the company that's partnering with Pfizer for the development of one of the coronavirus vaccines. I play a a little role in that, not a huge role, but what I mainly do is um, my company is working on personalized medicine for cancer treatment, so teaching your own immune system how to attack your own tumor and kill it. So that's mainly what I've been doing and, and different ways to treat challenging cancers. Um, so, yeah, I love it. I'm very, very happy at my new job.
0: Oh, and your, your company should feel so grateful that they have you. Thank um, you. You're an amazing, amazing young woman and what you're doing with your time and with your life is just amazing. And, and, and it all happened after you put down the drink. Yeah, none of this
1: would have happened. Otherwise, this job or any of it.
0: You're helping so many people. Oh, I'm going to start crying, but <laughs> I'm going to keep it together. Well, thank you again so much, Jill. And I And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I hope it doesn't snow too much for yeah. you, you work. <laughs> Be safe. <laughs> thank you. Okay. And I look forward to having you on my show again. Anytime. Okay. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes – podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.